So welcome to Plodcast, episode 35. Here we are. Uh, Plodcast, uh, Plodcast 35. I mean, look at that. That's 35. That's a better part of a year. So thanks for thanks for staying with me. Thanks for checking in. Thanks for tuning in or, or whatever. You don't tune in. Whatever it is you do with the, with the podcast, thanks for doing it. So I want to begin by talking a little bit uh, about uh, an economic principle. Um, this this is the principle that uh, was identified by Bastiat in uh, uh, in his writings in the 18th century, and then was picked up by Hazlitt in his very fine book Economics in One Lesson. I want to talk a little bit about it because it is a uh, there's a principle involved in this that uh, we we have to um, take into account virtually every time we're watching the evening news about any kind of economic issue. And it could be uh, the economic issue that we're considering uh, could be uh, the closure of a factory, the opening of a factory, the uh, impact of uh, tariffs, uh, the impact of a trade war, the, the idea of uh, um, an imbalance of trade. Um, it, it, basically, there's a, there's a driving, there's a theme that runs throughout all of these things, and, and thoughtful individuals are going to look at it and say, ah, Whatever they're presenting to me, there's another side to this that either cannot be seen, cannot be photographed, cannot be interviewed, or it can be, and they're not, and they're just not doing it. But here's here's how it works. Uh, uh, this is uh, th- th- this comes under the heading of the broken window fallacy, the broken window fallacy. So, um, and and a, a good example of. Um, this fallacious, uh, fallacious economic thinking could be seen in the uh, the early days of the uh, Obama um, administration when they instituted the cash for clunkers uh, uh, campaign. That's a, that's like a textbook um, illustration of this fallacy. So if I if I throw a brick through somebody's window, if I'm walking down Main Street, and I throw a brick through somebody's window, is that an economic stimulus, right? Is that an economic stimulus? Or let's say I'm a really bad person and I walk down Main Street and I throw a brick through every window on Main Street and before the cops catch me. So, but I, um, and when they finally catch me and they haul me down to the station and they ask me uh, what I was doing, uh, could I defend myself by saying, well, I was stimulating the economy? <laughs> I might say that, but they might say, but, but you, you are a private citizen. You don't work for the government. You don't have the right to do anything that stupid. Uh, if you're with the government, then you, you do have the right to make, do, do things that stupid, but you're just a private citizen, so you're in trouble. And I say, well, yeah, but let's just consider the economics of this. Can you deny that I just created a lot of work for the glazier, for the for the guy down at the glass and awning shop. And they say, well, yeah, I was da- I was down there yesterday before you did this, and he was talking about how he was on the fence. Am I going to hire extra help or not? I'm I'm sure he's I'm sure he's going to hire extra help now, because he's got to replace all the windows up and down Main Street. This was very very clearly 
an economic uh, boon to the glazier. Okay, uh, so far so good. That's, that's the thing that people see. So if you uh, look at all the broken windows and you look at the person who gets the contract to replace all the broken windows, that's what you see. You, you see the economic stimulus, right? What don't you see? Well, what you don't see is uh, what the, all the shopkeepers would have spent their money on if they hadn't had to replace their windows. So, um, and, and there, we, we could be talking about hundreds of different things. So one of them might, be, might have been contemplating giving um, his, employees, his employee a raise, and now he's not going to uh, because he's got to pay for the window. Someone else might have been thinking about uh, going on vacation with his wife and spending money down in Phoenix, Arizona, and now he's not going to. Another one might have been thinking about going out to a restaurant and spending money on a nice dinner with his whole family, but now he's not going to. So you, the money that they spend on the window is money that they're not going to spend anywhere else. The money that they spend on the window is money that they fail to spend that they would have spent somewhere else. They might have just put it in the bank and the bank loaned it out. Or that money that is now going to go to the glazier is money that isn't going to go where it would have gone otherwise. Okay. Now, the someone in the grip of this economic fallacy can go down to the glass and awning shop and interview the guy who was just hired. He can interview um, the person who thinks this is totally great because this is a real boon to business. All right, he can interview, the, and those people can show up on camera and say, "This is great. This is wonderful. This is this is the best thing." But it's not possible to interview the manager of the restaurant that that person that one of the shopkeepers didn't go to. It's not possible to interview the people at the vacation resort that another um, shopkeeper didn't go to. It's not possible to interview the person who didn't get the raise, etc. But the, the amount of money, the, the interviewable people are, are interviewable at the spot where all the money shows up at clusters and you can talk to them and they can say, yes, this is wonderful. The people that could be interviewed of, of, about all the lost opportunities are not identifiable. And if they were identifiable, you're talking about 10 bucks for this person and 150 for that person, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the same principle if you want to flip it around negatively when a, when a corporation closes, closes a factory. You can go down and interview all the people who are thrown out of work and, and talk to them about how it's going to be a tough Christmas this year because the factory closed. Um, but there's no way to go interview all the people who are going to be economically blessed to the same dollar amount because of the closure of the factory. You can't, you can't find those people. You can't identify them. So to make all your decisions based upon those people you can see and identify uh, and ignore the people that, you, that mathematically have to be there, they, they just, as a matter of logic, that, that money has to be, uh, if you're spending it over here, 
uh, you're not spending it over there. That's just a mathematical necessity. A cannot be not A. Um, so the fact that you can identify the one group and not identify the other group does not mean that the other group is not there. So um, it, it, with the recent uh, tariffs that President Trump announced, of course, uh, st North American steel manufacturers were thrilled and they came out and talked about how they were thrilled on camera. Okay. Now, but where, where would that money that is now going to be spent on tariffs, where, that, that money that uh, is invested in one place, where would it have gone had they not done that? Well, we don't know. So enough, uh, we should be done with glib thinking. We should be done with uh, just sort of facile, well, I'm a, a facile an analysis where, where you say, I think it's great that we smashed all those perfectly good cars in the Cash for Clunkers program and stimulated the economy by having people uh, buy these new cars. Well, the money that's spent there is money that wasn't spent elsewhere. And we just have to realize what we're talking about. We can't just uh, pretend that we uh, pretend that we're sophisticated because we insist on on looking at one half of the picture only. So I want to plug a book uh, in this episode, uh, Podcast Thirty Five. I want to plug a book that I have not uh, finished yet, but I, I think enough of it that I want to commend it. Uh, to you, and I've recommended it in uh, marriage counseling already uh, more than more than once. Um, the book is called Love and Respect by Emerson Egerich, and uh, I'm not sure that's how you pronounce his last name, Egerich or Egerich. Um And this this is a, a book that talks about uh, the difference between differences between men and women when it comes to uh, the desire for love and the desire for respect. And uh, this reality, I think, is something that, that people have recognized for a long time. I, touch, I touched on it in my uh, book a number of decades ago, Reforming Marriage. I have, have a section on this, on, on this principle that men are commanded in the New Testament to love their wives. Wives are commanded to respect their husbands. Uh, this book is um, devoted to that that principle and devoted to sorting out marriage problems that are based upon the misunderstandings and the miscommunications that occur because husbands and wives don't know what kind of fuel their spouse runs on. Um, men are like diesel trucks and women are run on regular. Okay, they and you don't want to put the wrong kind of fuel in the wrong tank. Um, if if you if you do that and you can't uh, be um, you shouldn't be baffled by the results when you do that. So um, let me uh, begin with a qualification. Of course, every human being created in the image of God should be loved and respected. Both. All right. Of of, of course, the Bible tells us the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor, and that neighbor might be male or female, that neighbor might be wife or husband, that neighbor may be son or daughter. So we're supposed to love our neighbor. And so everyone who's created in the image of God 
uh, we, sh we should love them. And the Bible also tells us to respect everyone. In, in Peter, we're told, uh, in 1 Peter, we're told to honor all men, basically respect all men. We're to respect everyone. So whether someone is a man or a woman, whether they're your husband or wife, you should respect them. But when the, uh, when the Bible sort of singles out a particular class of individuals, like husbands, or, they sing, or the Bible singles out wives, when it tells husbands what to do, it tells husbands to love their wives. Love your wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When the Bible singles out women, uh, it tells them to respect their husbands, honor their husbands, submit to their husbands. Now, um, there's one place, uh, there's no place, I'll, I'll put it this way, there's no place in the Bible where wives are commanded to love their husbands. Uh, it's okay, you know, going back to the comment I made about the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor, of course, uh, a wife knows that her husband is a neighbor, and so she should love her neighbor. Um, and in Titus, it talks about how the older women are to instruct the younger women to be husband lovers. It's, it's a compound word, children lovers and husband lovers. Uh, and the word uh, used there is the word um, philea uh, that is related to um, the word phileo, uh, brotherly affection, warm affection. I would translate that compound word as that older women should teach the younger women to be into husbands and into kids, to be domestic, to, be, to have warm affection for their um, uh, for their families, right? So um, that's that's a given. When when husbands are told what to do, they're told to love, and I think that they're told to do do this because um, the Bible commands to, uh, in a twofold way. It commands us according to our weakness, and it commands us according to our spouse's need. So men are told to love because A, they're not that good at loving, and B, their wives need love. So God commands to our weakness and he commands to our spouse's need. When wives are told to respect, it's because women are not that good at respecting and men need respect. And what Egerix does in this book is he just, in, in painstaking detail, walks through the dynamics of husband-wife interactions and how uh, husbands and wives can avoid what he calls the crazy cycle where um, uh, where they just, their um, misunderstanding of what this principle involves causes the husband to trip up his, trip up his wife and causes the, the wife uh, to trip up her husband. So um, the uh, one and, and this is not a mild, uh, this is not a big deal, but I, I would say that the the prose of this book and the maybe the editorial uh, philosophy behind how, how it was edited uh, has made the language or the syntax somewhat evangelically, if you know what I mean. Uh, it, it comes across like a... Uh, uh, it comes across like an evangelical book on marriage, right? At the same time, the principles that are laid out in this book are as hard as nails. Uh, this is a hard-headed book, and it's a clear, clear-eyed look at what is tripping up a lot of men and women in their marriages. 
uh, I commend this book highly, Love and Respect by Emerson Egerichs. So, hamartiology. Let's talk about hamartiology. Let's talk about sin. Um, uh, in our last podcast, we talked about uh, the word acrasia, uh, and this word is related to it. Related to acrasia, the word akrates is used once in 2 Timothy 3.3, 3, and it means incontinent, incontinent. It is found in the middle of some other bad company. Um, in this uh, verse, it says, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, there's our word, akrates, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. That's 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. Uh, sins, in, in this passage, we see that sins are clearly like grapes, uh, meaning that they come in bunches. They, uh, sins are clustered together. In the New Testament, we see that virtues cluster together. The fruit of the Spirit are a cluster. The um, works of the flesh are clustered. Passages like this, uh, 2 Timothy 3, show the sins are all clustered together. You see the same thing in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, where um, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, and the, and the things that they're supposed to avoid are all clustered together. So, uh, akrates is incontinent, someone without self-control. Someone has poor impulse control. And so, consequently, when the impulses are to be disobedient to parents or to be uh, whiny and mopeful, unthankful, to, or the impulses to blaspheme God or to do or say the unholy thing or to neglect someone that you ought to be affectionate toward you without natural affection, um, uh, this, uh, this particular sin, this particular problem uh, uh, manifests itself naturally. God in the time of the sickness, God in the dark. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.